0: It's Greyhouser. I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to our listeners in Ashburn, Virginia. They are our largest group of listeners, it appears, through our analytics. So we just wanted to say hello and invite them to send in messages through Anchor. Anchor is an awesome podcast listening app. It's an awesome podcast creation app. And you can use it to send voice messages directly to the show that we can play. If you send a voice message and you're from Ashburn, we'll be sure to play it in the next episode. Thanks. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps people like to listen? How do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions Is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. I love Anchor's easy-to-use drag-and-drop interface. You just drop in the conversations you have with your co-host, your monologues, or whatever else you want to record, and combine that with sound effects and music, and hit publish. It's really just that easy. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm/start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. Once again, that's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Hello and welcome to Monorail News Weekly. This week, we have a very special guest, uh, Tim Delaney. You might not know him by name, but you certainly know some of his projects. He worked on Discoveryland. Oh, didn't just work on, I'm sorry. He was the executive producer on Discoveryland and... Space Mountain from the Earth to the Moon at Euro Disneyland. He was involved in the making of Hong Kong Disneyland, um, the original Disney California Adventure, and some other really cool things um, for Disney and some really cool things outside of Disney. But we want to talk to him primarily about his work uh, for the company, and I want to start by asking you how you got involved with Disney.
1: (laughs) Well… It all started long ago. I, I, I'm a graduate of Art Center College of Design here in Los Angeles, and um, I had graduated, uh, you know, um, from the school, and as usual, as being a young um, design student, I was out looking for work and had several freelance jobs. But one day, three years after I graduated, I got a call from one of my ex-instructors who uh, was a who used to teach uh, rendering at uh, at art center and he worked and he told me that he worked for which i had known but i didn't make a connection uh he worked with wed enterprises which right. was uh, wed which was uh, walt disney's original design company the company that walt had put together uh, specifically to build Disneyland. And so at that time I was involved in other projects and he wanted to know if I would, you know, was looking for a job and believe it or not, at the time I said I was not. And then six months later, I was. And then, but they would, I, you know, six months later, uh, I was interested and they weren't. And then six months after that, we were mutually got together. So I began working for him in the graphics department at WED and I was doing mostly uh, I was doing all their illustrations, um, primarily when a corporate sponsorship comes in like a Disneyland of Kiss comes in, they want renderings of all the drawings and all that. So that's kind of how I got started. But uh, the process of my development is actually, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting story if you want to hear about it. Sure. Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> so, um, Wet Enterprises, just to back it up, as I mentioned, is, it was Walt Disney's original uh, design company and it, it encompassed um, many divisions. Uh, it has – I mean, I think they're famous for having like 150 different disciplines from – ranging from architects to engineers to model builders and writers and artists. And, you know, it's, it's one-stop shopping and wed enterprises, which eventually in the eighties became Walt Disney Imagineering has only one client and it's the Walt Disney company. And so it's the most amazing place. So when I went to work there, what I did is I, I, although I was working, you know, in my graphics department, every, free second I had. We used to have a couple of breaks a day and at lunchtime, I spent all of my time going through all the departments and introducing myself because I was just like completely amazed by this organization. And I'd been a big Disney fan when I was a kid. So um, I thought it'd be fantastic. And so what I I did is that I just I went around, and I met everyone. And at the same time, I decided, although I was doing illustrations in the graphics department, um, I actually, what I really wanted to do is get more into the concept design work. So for one year uh, while working in Imagineering, I went home and put together a new portfolio. Um, what happened, what was going on at the time is that they were just beginning the concept design phase or they were just beginning the... Uh, let's say the blue sky concept phase for Epcot Center, and so I was like, "Hey, I want to work on that." And a lot of the classic artists at Wed at the time, and really truly wonderful, iconic people—people, people, you know, from Mark Davis to Herbie Ryman to Exotencio to God—it was just, it was just like the who's who of what of of the studio and who's who of of the original Disney parks. I would go around and talk with them, and I noticed that most of those guys were fantastic artists, but not many people were doing uh, really futuristic architecture, and that was something that I was extremely interested in. So my year, I, my first year at, at WED is that I actually went home every night, worked on a portfolio, and then after a year I went to my boss and who had hired me, and I told him that I thought I could do more for the company and um and i just wanted to see if i could show my stuff and see if i could do other things for the company to help them out so <clears throat> uh so sorry about that um so um i did and i set up meetings with john Hanch and marty scalar and all the upper management there and i showed them my portfolio and in, and in the first meeting they kind of looked at me like kind of strange like don't you already work here and I said, matter of fact, I do, but I think I can help you doing more things. So uh, for some unknown reason, after about three weeks of that, um, I got called into my boss's office and he told me, well, we've run out of work and we don't I'm going to have to let you go. So I was like, and oh, by the way, I had done the Starcade at Disneyland. I had designed it, built it and installed it. Oh, uh, wow. I, was more, I was doing more things. And there's a big 90 foot mural there, which I had done, which is still there, by the way, after all these years. This is 1976 when I started okay. and I'm talking about 1977, 78. So, um, so they let me go. And I was kind of shocked. I had, I had done a whole series of travel posters for Space Mountain, uh, in Disneyland, and we were just right. opening Space Mountain at the time. So I walked out of my boss's office, and after he told me he was going to have to let me go, walked over to my desk, I took all the posters, everything off the wall, went into the gentleman's, uh, gentleman by the name of, uh, um, John um, Jr., who was head of the project at the time, Epcot at the time. And I said, look, I really don't want to leave, um, you know, I think I can help you. And he says, well, I don't know what I can do for you. So they gave me two weeks severance pay. I went home a week later. They called me back in and they hired me back and moved me upstairs into the concept design phase uh, department. And I started there working for Marty Scalar and I worked for him for the next 34 years. Um, and that's kind of how I got started. And for that, in in just to kind of round out the story, for the next nine months, I spent eight to nine hours a day drawing sketches <laughs> of the future of Epcot. Uh, just, you know, like giving an image to it. I mean, a lot of the early things that you've seen is probably the stuff that I had done. You know, I was just like, I was just cranking them out all day long. That's all I <laughs> I just drew like a crazy maniac and uh, POV sketches and aerial views. And I remember um, I did the first drawing of like, hey, why don't we just instead of going around the spaceship Earth, let's go underneath it. So, um, you know. Oh, wow. There was, there was kind of a gestation period of ideas at that time. You know, I, I would go in and I'd say, well, what about this? And I'd like, no, 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 no. And then about two weeks later, I'd start seeing that idea coming around. So, you know, you do have some impact and, and especially for me, the way I communicated primarily was all through my illustrations. You know, when you have the ability, in my case, I, I've always had this ability to, you know, look at drawings and turning, you know, turning them into perspectives in my head and I would just draw them and I would start painting them. And, you know, and, and a lot of times people like to talk about, you know, I was dealing with people at that time who would like to talk about, you know, what it could be. But then when you come in, you go, well, this is what it could look like um, right. d- by doing that, what that does essentially. And I, the advantage I had that way was, was, um, that, um, I was, I would consider myself always successful. Let me just say that. And let me, let me tell you how I define success. Okay. Of all the things that you do in this business is, especially at the Walt Disney company is you're always selling your ideas. In other words, you're always, you know, you, you work on them, you research them, and then you're always trying to promote them. And so many times you're meeting with, um, management. So, uh, what I would do is I would show something. Now upper management would say, you know what? We don't want to do that, you know. Like, okay, you move on, or they may, or they might say, "Hey, we really like that. Let's explore it." What I provided was an opportunity for people to make a decision, and that was where I considered success. If you you know understand, this is the this is the basic part of being creating visions for something, right. and what you want is you want to get people to understand them. You want to want them to, to want to go forward with them. And that's what you do. And like I said, sometimes they go, that's not exactly, we don't want to do that at all. So, okay, boom, we have that decision out of the way. We want to go in this direction. And, um, it's a huge advantage to be able to communicate visually and to communicate to the point where you're actually telling stories, um, without words. And that's, that's one thing that Imagineering and Disney really is great at. You know, we always talk about storytelling, but in fact, Theme parks are all about storytelling, but no one's telling you a story. They're telling you and creating visions so that you can walk into a themed environment and suddenly you're immersed in this area and no one's telling you a story. So it's storytelling without words.
0: Right. Now, I'm looking right now at your concept art for the Living Seas Pavilion and then the actual Living Seas Pavilion, and that's remarkably the same. Like it looks like very like the vision you had for the concept is more or less what was built.
1: And that's exactly right. Um I actually did uh, about 28 paintings, and th- believe me, this happens to me still now today. As a matter of fact, I can tell you about another project I just recently did. I did about yep. 28 paintings for the Living Seas Pavilion from the exterior and walking all the way through the pre-show and and the q line pre-show, which is down Nemo, but. Yeah, it was. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, but and then the architects, uh, we had a really small team. Uh, Kim Murphy was kind of our leader. He was the undersea expert guy. And then Alan Moyer was um, our architect and Brock Thelman was the show set guy. And, um, you know, we basically had this really small team and and we were just told, go ahead and start developing the pavilion. So I did these paintings and they just the architecture group just. Alan was really great. He just said, I'll take that. And we started building models and we started building everything. And so um I was, as I said, very fortunate to be able to kind of have that opportunity and have the time to be able to do those things. And so um if you look at all of my stuff, I really take a great deal of pride in, uh in my, my, um, my one, my one website, which is basically the Disney work. I have the concept renderings right next to the finished products. And so when right. you see that, it's, um, and I and don't ask me how I know how to do all that. I just I don't know. It was something in my brain is just wired that way. I, I sure. don't I have no idea. You know? so isn't
0: that, I see below that a space pavilion, a science city, another concept for a space pavilion. What looks like um, something I will talk about later um, was a space pavilion in science city. Was that at one point considered for Epcot or was that something else?
1: Uh, the space pavilion was. Uh, I ended up working on two or three of them. Well, first of all, is it the, which one are you looking at? The one with the big ball? I'm looking at the one with the big like dome thing that's kind of tilted,
0: and then the one with the giant ball with like the launching tower thing that you see besides like beside like launches.
1: Yeah, like the scaffolding all around. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So that so that painting. Let's just talk about it for a moment. Uh, as I mentioned, John DeCure Jr. Uh, was heading up the uh, Epcot design uh, department. But his father, John DeCure, Sr., was probably one of the most famous art directors in Hollywood. He was the art director. Of, matter of fact, he's famous for, for doing two things. He broke 20th Century Fox twice. He was the art director for Cleopatra, and then he was the art director for um, uh, Hello, Dolly! Oh, in yeah. Very expensive film. In each case, what happened is that his, you know, it, it, people probably don't remember the original Cleopatra with, with Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, it was the most expensive movie ever made. I think it was probably budgeted at $3 million and it came at 35 and it was in it. It ended up breaking 20th Century Fox. And for those people in California who, 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 or in Southern California, especially know what Century City is. Century City is, Is when 20th Century Fox originally went broke, they had to sell it back lot and that's what became Century City there in, in town. So the reason I'm telling you this is because they brought in John DeCure Sr. And like I said, he was, he was one of the most amazing personalities I ever met. This guy was, he was a great artist. He was a great art director. And like I said, one of the icons of Hollywood, but he was also one of the most amazing, um, Salespeople you've ever met. You, you should see this guy do. You should. You should have seen him. Like I was. I was really young at the time, and and I'm watching this guy do presentations where he'll start out and he starts. You know, he, he eventually starts out and he has all this passion to telling you about the project, and finally he's ripping his tie off and he's down on one knee, and, and, and you know, people like clients would be like corporations that come in and they look at this, are like, "What is this guy?" But, <laughs> so he. Idea of doing this um, um, space pavilion, and it's the one with a big ball. And what it is is basically the concept that somebody—I don't know who came up with the concept—is they want to do a vertical circle vision, right? Oh. Imagine a circle vision, and it's inside a big ball, and it would be around the circumference. And then inside the the, the audience would be sitting in the middle, looking at this. And it was probably it's, you know it's all before, on um, the domes and Soren and things like that. And so, um, I questioned whether it was going to work or not, but, but anyway, I got a call because they wanted to sell this pavilion. You know, I, I got Marty Scholar called and said, look, we need a rendering of this building. As a matter of fact, they, they gave it to three artists and, and just to be clear, this
0: is, ball is not the, the spaceship earth ball. This is a no, different it, ball that never was built.
1: <laughs> correct. Correct. And it, but just, you know, it's kind of hard to explain, but the, it's a, Just imagine a circle vision on an edge, but it's got two spheres on the outside of it. And so the audience would sit there.
0: I'll link the uh, the documents that I'm looking at in the show notes for anyone who wants to look at it.
1: So one of my first experiences, (laughs) one of my first experiences with that is that I got a call to go down to Disneyland at six o'clock in the morning. And what they were going to do is they were going to run a star field on the circle vision theater you know, on the screens there. Right. Um, and it's more land. So I'm like, okay, you know, get in for the par- before the park opens and we'll check this out. Cause everyone wanted to test the theory, you know, it was interesting cause everyone had an opinion about whether this vertical circle vision was going to work. Right. So there's a whole group of us going on there and I remember I was, so they said, okay, here's what we're going we're to You know, the, they they have handrails and circle vision. So, you know, if the, you know the image tips people are not falling over, so we told everybody to lay down on the handrails, oh wow, okay, <laughs> and I looked across and I was like I looked across and the person next to me in the next handrail over was Ron Miller, who at the time was, the oh president. wow, and Ron sadly, Ron is just recently deceased, has just recently died, um but I remember looking at the star field and then. We ran this thing for about five minutes, and somebody was explaining what it was all about. And then and then we all kind of got off that and walked outside. and everyone who had an opinion about it, so there were those who thought, "Wow, this works really great." They thought it was. they thought it would work really great. And there are others who thought, "I end up crying to understand this because it's off to the side." Whatever your opinion was by seeing this mock-up, it confirmed your opinion. If you thought it wasn't going to work, you'd say, "You see?" told you it wouldn't work and those who thought it would work said you see it worked perfectly it was really an interesting experience I have to say for me but so John DeCure had put this whole concept together I was asked to do this rendering this rendering is about five feet across so I used to have to paint really large because nobody was enlarging things at that time but I just literally painted the whole thing like a lot of the stuff the early days at Disney and um I know they were had a pitch meeting to somebody. I can't remember who the sponsor was, but they were always looking at sponsors those days because they were looking for, you know, people to put money up to fund the project. Cause you know, it was, it was just that there was, you know, sponsors and participants and um, corporate sponsorship was really the basis of how things really got done at that point in time. So I obviously it didn't fly, but I tell you, I worked on maybe there must have been. Three, what am I saying? Maybe six or seven um, space pavilions were actually developed for Epcot. And uh, I know I worked on two of them. Uh, I had my own concept. And I had then there was the one I was just telling you about. So, you know, then they eventually, you know, settle on Mission Space.
0: Um, so this would have gone where Mission Space is now
1: yeah actually at that time because the pro- because Epcot was not really completely fleshed out um they did they were just looking for this was a time where you were just taking a pavilion and it just said like if we sell it we'll put it in you know they were right they were for that okay. so so it it wasn't it wasn't uh site specific um but they were just looking saying you know we want to take people on this adventure and you know and 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 one of the reasons why I was into um Um, the the Space Pavilion, is that, and I've talked about this in the past before, but I was totally and completely um, hooked uh, early in life by my viewing of um, of Walt Disney's uh, Man in Space program, um, which was done in... As most of the country was, including the president, apparently. Yes, Um, it was, and it was phenomenal. You know, it was Man in Space and Man in the Moon and Mars and Beyond, and, you know, Walt was a genius in a sense that he made it kind of science fact. But he also kind of had a level of entertainment with it by uh, wanting to put a level of entertainment to it. It, it holds
0: up. I've watched it.
1: Well, it does. Yeah. It's it's quite extraordinary. But one of the things that was a real I mean, I didn't realize at the time, but, you know, later as years went on and I began working with Ward Kimball. Ward Kimball was the producer, and I thought, well, you know, after I after I worked with Ward, I was like, how in the world did Walt ever decide to do that? Because Ward was kind of a wacky guy, and he always had those wonderful sketches and drawings. But uh, Ward was actually the producer of it, and so they were doing a little bit of fantasy, a lot, a little bit of, um, you know, uh, uh, real science with Willie Lay and Werner von Braun, Braun and all that. And it's a phenomenal show. And when I was about six or seven years old, I guess I saw that, and I was completely hooked. I mean, I was really hooked. That's why it got me in the whole world of looking at future things and contemporary things, and that's why I still do what I do. I mean, you
0: go and you watch Man in Space, and you look at one of the crafts they have, and you're like, that's the space shuttle. They designed the space shuttle in the 50s.
1: (laughs) Well, the whole concept, the whole concept of Man in Space, the one with the big launch rocket with that thing, that that vehicle on the top the delta wing aircraft on top which basically was used to take human beings up there right i always thought that was the greatest idea in the world they should do it now they should just launch that kind of spacecraft that returns to earth and then have another spacecraft which just hauls up all this the equipment you need by doing the shuttle and putting them together it jeopardized i mean imagine if you had a well I shouldn't say seven thirty seven these days, but I mean something small almost like a like a Gulfstream five private jet and right. that's and that's all it's, it's very light. you can just push that up there and then haul the freight like a like on some kind of robotic um you know freight carrier rather than putting them all together. I never understood that i I thought they the the the, the Warner von Braun Walt Disney presentation was brilliant I mean it was right. So,
0: I mean, if nothing else, it, it succeeded in making the American public believe we could go to space.
1: Well, that that leads me to tell you what is the basis of everything I've ever done. OK. OK, which is I when I saw that TV show and I remember turning to my parents and saying, my God, this is is this really real? I mean, the you know, are we in outer space? Are we exploring outer space now? Because I mean, I, like I said, I was six or seven years old, right? And my mother said, no, I think Mr. Disney's just made, he's just making all this up. And I was profoundly affected by the fact that here's someone who had created a vision, you know, whether through animation or in the second one, there was real live footage of astronauts in outer space. Um, somebody could create a vision. And when everybody saw that vision, suddenly it became real and suddenly it's like, yeah, of course we could do that. Of course we could do that. You know I mean? that Why not? And so that concept of being able to do in my world, it was more art and illustrations and design and things like that. But when you see something and you, you have an idea and it's put into a visual form, suddenly people go, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, let's go forward. I guess we could do that. Let, let's do it. Once you see it, you know, if I, if I said, well, it's going to be a, if I told you verbally, well, we're going to have this rocket and people are going to get on the top of it. and We're going to launch into space. People go, yeah, OK. Yeah. But once you show them the picture, suddenly. It sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know that. And and um, and it's funny because if I jumped all the way to 1995, okay. when we opened Space Mountain in Paris, um there was a very. I don't know if you've ever seen Shoot the Moon, which is a TV show that they showed in Europe. And the TV show was uh, just it was a preview for Space Mountain in Paris. Right. And, and it was about promoting it was promoting it was about promoting Disneyland Paris. It was promoting the Walt Disney's company, Walt Disney Company's interest in historical interest in exploring outer space through the man in space program. And part three of that was specifically selling Space Mountain in Paris, right? Right. Those, those three things. So they did this TV show called Shoot the Moon, which, uh, I was, I was the host of. Oh yeah. wow. I'm going to have to go back and find this now. You, you shoot the moon. You'll find it. Okay. You, you'll find it. You can easily find it. This TV show was shown all across, Par- uh, excuse me, all pan-European, all, all, all throughout Europe. There were, you know, it was like one of those TV specials. And the response was phenomenal. I mean, I got so many letters from kids and it was really amazing. And I mean, I look at my performance and I mean, I was so burned out. I was working for months, seven days a week. I mean, it was just great. And I was going back and forth between, um, you know, Glendale here and uh, Paris. And it was crazy. I mean, they're like, OK, now we need you to do this. We need to do that. But. Uh, the point happens to be that when that project opened, it connected back historically to what Disney was all about, plus connect to what was going to happen at Space Mountain in Paris. Um, and, um, and it was, it was amazing. I, I felt like I came full circle at that point.
0: So this, I just want to briefly touch on Science City before we start talking about Euro Disneyland. But Science City looks similar in, in concept. To what Disney announced very recently for the Wonders of Life Pavilion?
1: Yeah, let's see. What what is that image?
0: <laughs> uh, it's the one that's like the giant, giant like robot thing, and it, it it's in like a corner, and then you can kind of have like a spire going up and like okay. a
1: yeah, yeah. Well, you cat. know, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to tell you that was probably I don't think that was done for Disney. That was done for something else. Okay. Okay. Um. But, but i mean in terms of that kind of look and styling, I mean I worked a lot on Communicore for Epcot um right. and which was which was really meant to be more of an interactive kind of thing, and that's you know that's that's something that it was similar to what that illustration is that you're looking for or that you're looking at, i should say right so, so, yeah
0: yeah so <laughs> let's talk a little bit or mainly i guess about. Euro Disneyland and how how you came to Discovery Land and how that kind of was developed.
1: Okay, well, when um, as most of your audience knows, the world changed dramatically when the administration of Michael Eisner and and Frank Wells and Jeffrey Katzenberg came to Disney, and that was in um, basically. Um, Um, the summer of 1984. Right. And so they were really aggressively trying to develop uh, the parks. They were trying to develop, they they were trying to, they were basically waking up this sleeping giant that was, that was known as the Walt Disney company. And they, you know, it was Disney at that time wasn't doing, you know, it was like that. It was when I tell people I work for Disney, they go, Oh, that's that little design of that, that cartoon studio. You know, so uh as we did a lot of development, it became obvious that especially Frank Wells wanted to go international with the theme parks. And they'd already done Tokyo, but they wanted to get into Europe, too. So when the word went out that they wanted to do something in Paris, I jumped on that bandwagon immediately. And I wanted to do tomorrow the Tomorrowland there. And I wanted to do something different. So Tony Baxter was in charge and he was like selecting the team. And I was really I had a lot, a lot of experience, and so did Tom Morris, and so did Chris Teets, and Eddie Sato was new to the company, but Eddie was, you know, was Eddie's really knowledgeable of the parks, and Jeff Burke was going to do Frontierland, but I wanted to do whatever the Tomorrowland version was going to be. So, uh, we started doing research and that project had fits and starts. We would start working on it. Then they'd say, all right, no funding. We can't get anything going. So stop and go do something else and then get back on it. Then, then you'd go back onto it. So essentially I started looking at what, um, the tomorrow land could be. And we, and we all know that as soon as you build a tomorrow land, it becomes yesterday land and everybody's <laughs> aware of that, right? Today land. Today land. So the one thing. I mean and I think Tony Baxter kind of initiated some things like hey let's see if we can do something else um you know maybe there's another theme to this. And so he kind of kicked around some ideas and everybody did. I mean it's a very collaborative kind of effort. But um what I what I ended up doing is that I really went back and looked at the parks again. Um and when you look at Fantasyland and if you look at Adventureland or you look at um, frontier land, you know, essentially um, all the lands, I realized very carefully, I realized that all the lands are collections of that theme. So like when you go into fantasy land, I mean, you have, you know, a Pinocchio village, which is German, or you have a French castle, or you have, you know, various um, uh, locations which best tell that story. When you go to Adventureland, it's really a series of exotic ports. You know, you have the South Seas. You have, you know, you have African jungles. You've got the Jungle Cruise, which takes you to all the rivers of the world. And, all that, and it's a collection of things. And yet Tomorrowland always tried to focus on the future. So I thought to myself, you know, well, wait a minute. Let's do something else. Let's follow that formula because I think it would be a better one. It would make it not only more interesting, but but most important, it would make it timeless. So I decided, you know, started kicking around ideas about how to make Tomorrowland a collection of the futures. There's, there's going to be, it ended up being, and being in Europe, we always want to pay a tribute to the great European visionaries. So we said, well, there's got to be a H.G. Wells version of the future, and there's got to be a Leonardo da Vinci vision of the future, and there should be a... Um, Jules Verne vision of the future. My God, Jules Verne. I mean, you know, he's, he's, in terms of the ultimate visionary, Jules Verne was the guy. I mean, when you, when you, when you read the from the earth to the moon story, which he wrote in 1865, and it just chronicles his vision of what he felt, um, a trip to the moon would be and how closely it followed what the real story of uh, the American version of going to the space. Um, the story, I don't know how, if you know what that story is, but basically Jules Verne, he wrote a story about post-Civil War United States. And he said, he, he, Jules Verne wrote, the only people in the world that ever going to get us in the world are going to be Americans. So his story centers around a group of industrialists post-Civil War United States. And they were afraid, well, the war is going to be over, so how are we going to stay in business? So they decided to build a giant cannon that would shoot a rocket to the moon. That cannon was going to be located in what they call Tampa town, which happens to be on a map very close to where Orlando, Florida is today. And so they built this big hole in the ground and they shot this bullet all the way to, uh, uh all the way to the moon. And the drawings, when you see the drawings that were done for those books, you see they understand the concept of weightlessness. They understand getting to the moon. They understood how long it would take to get to the moon. He, he right. understood you know, seven days and then return back, and it would land in the ocean. And if you look at the original etchings, it's got this rocket. It's got an American flag on it. And Life Look magazine did a parallel from the Jules Verne story to what the Apollo program was about. And it's phenomenal. So you you, you realize when you have visionaries like that, then we really, and he was talking about the future. Then we really have to embrace that. So, bringing it up to a contemporary time. So for Discoveryland, and we wanted to call it Discoveryland because it didn't want to say Tomorrowland because it, Tomorrowland has such a, you know, a dated history to it. Um, I also wanted to do a, uh, excuse me, a George Lucas future, and so because we had Star Tours there, and you know, and 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 then I used themes of like the 1930s popular mechanics books to do Autopia, you know, which is like these endless highways, like magic highways was, you know, in the fifties. So it, so this, this idea of a a tribute to European visionaries, number one, and number two, a collection of, you know, these, these futures, um, really started to enrich what the subject could be and what the environment could be and what the architecture could be. And it really put it into a category of making more of a timeless uh, vision of the future, something that can, you could always add to. I mean, they can continue to add to it, like whether it's a Marvel future or a or any other future, you know, that they would like to do because it kind of created the foundation where the basis of what that story is all about is, is woven into it. Right. So, so that was the the approach that we wanted to take. And um and so you know, the, the eclectic part of it, I mean, there are people who think Discovery Land is the best of all the Tomorrowlands. I'm one of them, but you know, I won't. Yes. <laughs> but um but but the way to do it, and actually, you know, as I said, you know, once we took this who are the personalities? Because we're always looking for characters to relate to this and not necessarily the characters are going to tell a story with the exception of Jules Verne, uh, which we did with the Visionarium show. But in terms of visual styling and so, um, you know, the, the Orbitron, one of the things about uh, one of the one of the challenges you have in a Tomorrowland kind of project especially the way we were doing them then, things have changed a little bit. But when you do them, that what you're doing there you're doing large projects are basically indoors. Now the original Tomorrowland, original Tomorrowland was like a total land on the move. You know, when you had uh, the rocket jets up above on the third level, you had, uh, um, you had the, the, the people mover, you had
0: right,
1: the Tomorrowland at Disneyland. It's all right. Yeah, right. It's all right. Sorry. Um, uh, you had the Skyway, you had the Autopia, you had uh, the submarines. The whole place is active; things are always going on. So right. but, but when you put together the the menu of attractions that we were uh, uh, scheduled to use, everything was kind of indoors. You know, um, you know, Captain EO Star Tours, a Circle Vision movie that was that was part of the co- the contractual agreement that that we had to do a French show. And there's a whole story connected to that. But so everything was kind of quiet, you know. It was
0: timekeeper, wasn't
1: it? It was timekeeper. And, 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 but what happened is that in the contract specific, specifically between the French government and uh, the Walt Disney company, they wanted to do a show dedicated to France. And it said, and we would, you know, for example, like a circle vision show. Right. So, So I'll come back to that in a second. So anyway, so I said, well, how do we get some energy here? So I thought, well, okay, we can, I mean, I like the rocket jets. I mean, it's a simple thing, but I had, we had to do more than that. So I we did a lot of research and looked up and said, well, you know, let's do a planetary model, you know, planetary model, things rotating all around and the rockets go flying around it. So it became a, a, a you know, like the, the ultimate thing that you want in a ride. One, it became an icon for the land. Number two, it became a kinetic sculpture all these globes and rotating planets. And third, it became a ride. So you could ride among all these um, rotating planets. And so that, you know, that was kind of like our jewel, oh, excuse me, our Leonardo da Vinci uh, planetary model. So that was going to be one thing. And then for the um, Videopolis they needed a huge kind of like the Tomorrowland Terrace, but they wanted an indoor huge facility, 50,000 square feet of of uh, indoor dining and entertainment complex. So that became this big, huge kind of Jules Vernean kind of aircraft hangar with the wow. Hyperion, Hyperion airship coming out of that. And then um, then, of course, we had Star Tours and we had Captain EO. And there was no Space Mountain there at the time, not for opening. So. I was a little apprehensive and, and people who, and like on the team also, and I talked to Tony Baxter about this and I was not that excited about a circle vision because circle visions have a shelf life of about three years when you put them right. So we decided, well, why, you know, like if that's what we want to do and that's what our, if that's what the requirement is, plus that's what our budget is for this project So, like, well, how do we turn it from a movie experience to an attraction? So, uh, again, you you begin brainstorming ideas. And and the idea of putting – turning it into a time machine show and putting a robot in the theater and having this conceit of us sending this nine-eyed robot Mm -hmm. through time um, so it could record what it looked like all throughout history, you know, and – a, a kind of a journey through time. And so that's what we did. And, um, the show was kind of amazing. I, I thought it was really successful. I thought it was very successful. Um, you I mean, know, it was
0: successful it, enough that they brought it to Florida.
1: Yeah. And I, I don't think it worked as well in Florida. Um, I, I think it was really successful in France. Um, I, I, because you know, you had European actors and everybody knew who they were. Um they did it they took it to Japan and I don't think I don't think it worked as well there. I mean I just you know, sometimes um you have to you have to make sure that, you know, you, you know, it, it as I said before, the number one rule in imagineering is know your audience. And right. I think you really have to kind of understand is this the right thing that plays. And that was so ethnocentristic to France that, that 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 was a uh a situation where um, you know, they, there was a real appreciation of what it was there and somehow it just worked. It really did work. Um, and so it was great. Um, I, I thought it was kind of amazing. And, and that whole scene by opening, and I think Tom Fitzgerald and his team at theme parks did all that. And, um, you know, that, that Michelle Piccoli played the part of Jules Verne in the first scene as he's, you know, he's on the front of a TGV train going at a hundred miles an hour. Right. And, you know, you know it was, it was pretty it was it was it was a fun show and a big musical score and and i think the idea of the robot at the inside was amazing um originally that was you know it was always designed to have robin williams to do that but and we we spent you know what i remember one whole mothers day on a sunday you know sitting with uh, robin williams and going through the whole script and it was a very funny day, but we could. He kept saying how good his French was, and the French said, eh, "It's not that good." So, but um, anyway, all well, that was all shot. We had to build the theater. The pre-show was an amazing. We spent more money on the pre-show setting up the whole concept of time travel and and you know because that was that was more. It was interesting. It was about Jules Verne, but it was more of an H. G. Wells time machine story. Right. Again, it it kind of covered two great uh, European visionaries, uh, and then the exterior. I wanted it to turn into more like um, a big, like scientific laboratory, and I, and, and I just love the Griffith Park Observatory up here in uh, Los Angeles. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, and it's a that's a beautiful building, and we kind of did that whole look to it, and it had those giant spires that had crackle neon on it, and and again, I was doing everything in the land uh, to try to make it timeless. And that was one part of it the the one thing that i I'm not sure that people really understand how all this works, but you know I didn't want to turn it into a Jules Verne land I didn't want to turn it into something old fashioned so in order to make things from a design point of view um, kind of timeless, you use old materials and new materials and you combine them so the whole land you know like the Orbitron or the theaters or basically all of the buildings, they had kind of a stylized look to them, number one. Number two, they had more of a kind of a mechanical, I guess you could say early steampunk kind of qualities before. this Absolutely. Was actually, this was all done before steampunk, uh, by the way. And then what I did is that I took everything and I lined all the buildings and all the attractions in neon. So it had this kind of electric feel to it. So it wasn't kind of old fashioned. It was kind of an interesting look of, of, of kind of a timeless quality with warm metals and things like that. And then we would use lime green or bright blue neon to edge everything. So it kind of kicked it into this. It isn't really old and it's not really, it's just kind of, it's not super contemporary, but it's meant to be, you know, again, I, I always use the word timeless just to make it, you know, seem right. Right.
0: So Space Mountain wouldn't open with this land, but you would be at Space Mountain and that ride would sort of save Disneyland Paris. Oh yeah. I mean, you're the guy who saved Disneyland Paris from yeah. complete failure.
1: Well I have a very nice I have a very nice note that I've kept. It's one of those I don't know if people know that, but a lot of executives use these small cards for notes. You know, Marty Scalar was famous for them. And after we opened Space Mountain, I got this note from Eisner, Michael Eisner. I had sent him some – he was not able to come to the opening. I mean, right. I, I took him through, but he was not there at the opening. And the opening was phenomenal. Um, but anyway, I, he, he sent me this note, and I just opened it up, and I said, thanks for saving Disneyland Paris. <laughs> and I'm like – Yeah, well, there was a lot of people involved in doing it, right? Of course, but but, um, but probably what people remember the most was the original concept of Discovery Mountain.
0: Yes, talk about that because it was not called Discovery Mountain when it opened, and even what opened, what was going to be called Discovery Mountain, was just one piece of the original Discovery Mountain concept, right? Correct.
1: Correct. What happened is we were going to, we, we were all really sensitive. All the park designers uh were real sensitive to this whole issue of, of weather over there. And, and and it's, and it found out that the only people really sensitive to uh weather or cold weather issues or rain or, you know, intense weather like that, the only people concerned about that are people from California. Because right. the Europeans like saying, yeah, it rains. So we go out and you know, we don't die. Um, So the original concept was to have a 100 meter in diameter uh, space mountain, which would be combining the ride in the upper portion of the mountain. and the lower portion, we're going to have the Nautilus submarine and and it was going to be uh, there were several rides on the inside and it was going to you would be able to connect all of the attractions or most of the attractions, I should say. And so you could actually walk around inside Discovery Mountain. And as I said, it was a hundred meters in diameter. It was big. It was a big 330 feet in diameter. It was really huge. So when Disneyland Paris, or as you said, Euro Disneyland, it later became Disneyland Paris. When it first opened up, and matter of fact, after the second year, the park wasn't performing as well. Okay. Right. It didn't perform and everybody knew that. And it was for various reasons. There were, you know, the government was taking their bit and, you know, the hotels were not performing like they had anticipated. And there were any number of reasons. It wasn't because of attendance in the first year. The second year, uh, I think the Walt Disney company threatened that they were, you know, if they didn't get a better deal, they were going to close the park. And of course right. you do that, people in Europe actually plan their vacations a year in advance. And so they said, well, gee, it may be closed, so we won't plan to go there. So right. the tenants dropped off in the second year. So, so maybe the – I would say maybe – so that was 91, 92. So we opened in 92. So 92 to 93 was fine. 93 to 94, the tenants was down, and we were opening this in June of 95. So um, I – I started thinking about how else could we get around this? And suddenly I was getting these calls and I was getting called into meetings and saying, look, um, we cannot possibly afford to build that 100 meter diameter building. Um, But we can build, we can build a regular space mountain and it's 62 and it's 200 feet in diameter, 62 meters. And so I started thinking about, okay, so how could we do this? And I have to say that I was always a huge fan of, of, of the um, Montezuma's Revenge ride down at Knott's um, Berry Farm. It's a catapult launch. And it's a catapult okay. that runs goes into a loop and runs out and then comes back through the loop. And it's just kind of a – it's not a roller coaster. It's, a, it's just kind of a, a launch system. And okay. I I kept looking at this going, wait a minute. You know, if if they can fire this, it's a cable-driven catapult launch system. If they can fire it down the length of this track and it goes into a big loop and then it goes up and it goes up, 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 and then the energy runs out. You know, it's just calculated to run out. And then it falls back down, goes through the loop, back through the station, into another loop, and then back into the station stops. And that's all that it is, right? Right. But the catapult is – quite extraordinary of all the dynamic forces that you can put on people that they really enjoy. Acceleration is the number one. Right. I'm not a big spinning guy, you know, falling doesn't, you know, is is a bit of a thrill, but it's also scary and all that. But when you accelerate in a car or you accelerate, it's just really fantastic. And so I put that together with, you know, I, I I hate to admit this, but the three lifts that you have it in, at space mountain, like at Disneyland. Right. You just gotta, kind of, you you go up and, and it's got this lift too. It's got a great show in the hobby and in the, in the tunnel. But I was like, Hey, if I'm going to go to outer space, you know, and based on Jules Verne's, let's get shot to the moon. So we started working on doing a catapult, incline catapult launch system. And so when you work on these kinds of rides of all the years I worked on these things, I learned two things, you know, you, you, you learn, you learn. You learn what really works because you can have great ideas about an attraction, but what you really need to do is if you have a really great attraction, that means there's going to be a huge demand. And right. of all the things that you need to make sure happens is that the capacity is there for, because of the demand. And secondly, it has to be reliable. Okay. Right. So when you do these things, you realize you have an opportunity to Death do. Track. Well, I can give you. I, well, let me tell you, there's going to be an attraction coming up in the future, which is, I won't, I won't go into it right now, but you'll see where there's going to be a problem in the future for Disney on an attraction. Can we talk about it after we get done recording this?
0: Yes. Okay. Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what it is, then you just mark my words and you watch. Okay. 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 So, okay. Uh, tell me more when we get done recording this. Okay. So, uh, we shouldn't bait the audience that way, but anyway. So what you realize is you have on, on your, on your, um, um, when you want, on your wish list of doing things, you have one what I call one trick pony. You've got one trick pony, and then one small, one small, po- you know, one small kitten. Let's just, let's just say, for example, um, if I had the catapult launch, I got the catapult launch for a Space Mountain in Paris, and it was the first full blown roller coaster with a catapult launch. First time ever, and and people are like well, you know everybody does catapult launches now. It was the first one ever. Montezuma's Revenge wasn't a coaster; it was an efe- it was an event. It was more of a a, a um, you know a, a thrill ride, but it wasn't. A, it didn't launch it, but right. my it was, was one trick pony. Yeah, it was. It was. You had that. It was like yeah, but it was like you needed something else, right? So um, I said I need to have that, and then what happens is it. We're going to launch it, and so by doing that, we're going to punch it to push it to the top of the mountain. It's going to fall into that mountain, and it goes twice as fast as any other space mountain. It goes 55 miles an hour. Now, to scrub all that speed out, you're going to have to have uh, loops, okay? It's the
0: only space mountain with a loop, or multiple inversions, actually.
1: Correct. That's right. It's the only one. The only, the only space mountain and it goes as, as i said disneyland which is which is a nice ride i mean it's a good ride it goes 27 miles an hour but it's, the one in paris goes 55 and right. you go upside down in the dark you know and uh, you've actually go there's a, a loop a corkscrew and then there's kind of a sidewinder there's three events that go on there so then that was one and then the other one is and it's kind of inspired by the work that tom morris did with you know onboard audio he used to get his little Walkman run music when he rides Space Mountain. So we were able to get onboard audio and that's, you know, and the, and the rest of it, all the track, the track had to fit all inside there. And, and, and so it did. And so that's what you do. You're like, okay, we're going to have that catapult launch. We're going to remember that the onboard audio is fantastic. And then, and then, you know, the loops are standard loops from vocoma and that's what we did so uh and it worked and and the other thing is that we did all the loading and unloading. I wanted the loading and loading outside the building i wanted we needed all that space inside the space mountain right for the ride that's what we did, but we wove a walkway all the way through the mountain so people could walk through and look in outer space and share the show and and it it gave us that walkthrough that people were looking for that we all wanted before, but it goes it actually. Everyone queues all the way through the mountain. So you'll hear the rocket. It was really dark in there, but you would hear everything was done in black light on the inside and you'll hear the rocket flying around all around you, above you, below you. You could see it occasionally go by and you hear people. It just sounds awesome. It just
0: sounds awesome.
1: It is. It's, it's, it was pretty amazing. And then you walk all the way through the mountain and then you go outside and then you go into the load on load area. So you get a preview of what it is. And the other half of the walkway, people can just walk through. People didn't want to ride the ride, but at least they could see what it was about. I thought it was brilliant. It was just great. That's genius. (laughs) So so it all worked. So the important part, so everything, it was really interesting in how we were developing it. It's really quite a fascinating story in the sense that if you want to learn how things get done. Um, So we were working on this Space Mountain. I said, look, this is what we have to do. So I work very well with project management and the project management team said, look, we don't have the money to do all this stuff. We have to make a change. They said, you know, if you can change the building, then maybe we can have the money to do the things that you want. So they said, it's if we, if Nautilus is outside. Well, the Nautilus is outside and that, that got built uh, in 94, but that was part of that other future expansion. But, um, but in terms of developing the mountain and all the things that I wanted, you know, you have a budget and you have to work to that budget. You have to stick to these budgets. So they said, look, if we could do a buy an off the shelf dome and put it over Space Mountain, um, that, will, that will get you all the things that you want. And I was like, uh, yeah, but that's not going to look the way we want. So I designed this whole the exterior skin of it to go on the outside of the dome. And that's what you see today.
0: So you bought an off-the-shelf dome and
1: then designed
0: the exterior so it looks like a space mountain.
1: Correct. And what happens if you look at the exterior of the mountain, you'll see that there's the gold part. There's a triangulated Uh panel. That is the dome. But then those ribs going up all the way to that crown on the top, those fit over the outside of it. So it maintained and retained The uh, Space
0: Mountain Look, right? Exactly. Wow. Okay, that's really that's really clever. (laughs) So it worked. I couldn't believe it worked. So you wouldn't know. I had no idea. I actually stared at this. I've never been to the park in Paris. I was in Europe last year, but didn't go to France. so I didn't have a chance to uh, to visit, although I really wanted to. It's on my bucket list. But looking at all these pictures, I, I never even thought that that's an off the shelf dome.
1: Yeah, it is. And what happened is that we built the the basic cylinder at at the base of the mountain. That was all poured in concrete. Right. Then we put the ride inside that cylinder. Then we built the roof over the top of it. And so that was the only way to drop the ride back in. You know, instead of fitting like instead of fitting it in like a ship in a bottle like they do in the other ones, this was actually you built it and then put the dome over the top of it.
0: Okay, so if you ever want to change the track, you have to remove the dome. Well,
1: they and... will, but I mean, they can take it apart. I mean, they, can, you know, it's not impossible, but it's it's how you expedite things when you want to get them built. Right. So, the development of Space Mountain, or it actually, was it, it was I, we were kept calling it Discovery Mountain. Uh, that's another. There, sp- there are even like references to DM
0: in the ride, right? Like all throughout the uh, line.
1: On every on every vehicle, there's a DM uh, like everything that says DM. Matter of fact, the main lo the main marquee it had a it, it said Discovery Mountain and the D the big D was part of Discovery and then the discovery part was another sign. So the big D was one sign and the rest of the words were not. So it said Discovery and then underneath the Mountain. Um, so when the name was changed and I'll remind me to t- make sure I tell you that story, but I want to stay, stick on one other story. Okay. I'll get change that out. So that big D I have sitting in my studio today. Oh, wow. The team gave it to me. So, um, so we were developing uh, discovery mountain at the time. And I will tell you how things work uh, in Imagineering. You, you, you have a team, you have a, a full group of people, maybe 30, 40, 50 people on the team. There's, There's engineers, multiple engineers. In this case, there's audio people. We have project managers, you have estimators, you have designers. I had a whole creative team, great people that I work with. And the teams are really, it's like one big giant family. And so you start developing uh, projects and once they start getting through these various milestones from concept design through schematic design to design development, you, as you get closer to your, your day to begin construction, you begin, you're immersed in these monthly meetings with management. And not only do you do creative meetings, but there are also these um, financial project management meetings. And so we would have these things, and there's usually 40 or 50 people in these meetings, and you're generally, you have, it's a long table, and it's flanked by all of these people who are immersed in these projects, all project management, estimating, marketing people, all kinds, every discipline you can imagine. And the table's a long table, but the person who's in charge sits in the middle. Like this would be, in this case, it was Mickey Steinberg. He was the executive in charge of construction. And right across from them, there's two seats available. Those seats change out all the time. It's because when you come in, you, as a creative director on this, I came in and I come in with my project manager sitting next to me. And, right. it's, an, and it's an inquisition. It, it is, it can be really tough. I love these meetings, but it can be really tough on people. So for months we would come in and, and our budget was a hard line budget of $90 million. So the $90 million in those days is, you know, it's, it's nothing compared to what they spend today, but right. it's a hard number. So you work and you, you go and, and generally when you start on a project, whatever you plan on doing, it's always over budget. It's always over, budget. you probably started, okay. Well, we designed it and, and estimating comes in and it comes in at $100 million. So now you got to take out $10 million. So every month you work on this and you can get it down to like 95, 94, you know, 93. Right. You go to these project update meetings and they go, How are you doing? Like, Well, we're here at 93. It's like, Okay, well, you know, you tell us when you get to 90 because we're not moving, we're not going to green light this, this, um, this project. So about the fifth or sixth month, I go into one of these meetings and, and you're always trading things out. You're always changing, but somehow it always bounces up some other thing. So my project manager was a, was a guy I work with. His name is, uh, his name is Doug LeBlanc. So Doug and I sit down to this inquisition and I go, all right, well, and I always kick it off because I'm want to be really aggressive with this. And I go, well, so let me tell you where we are. This. And Mickey looks at me and he goes, stop, just stop. I go, well, I just want to give you an update. Stop. Don't stop talking. I don't want to hear what you I just I don't want to hear what you have to say. OK, I'm going to tell you something. This afternoon, I am going to go to the studio and I'm going to sign an authorization to build Space Mountain for 90 million dollars. All right. That's all you get. I don't care what Space Mountain you use. I don't care how you get there. All I need you to do. Is two things. You have to keep a program. In other words, you have to have, you have to have the capacity. You have to have 24 an hour, 2400 an hour. You, you okay. need to be used to it. You need to have that. And your second thing is you need to keep this thing on budget. I don't care what else you do. Now get you know. I don't care how what space Mountain you use. I don't care about. It. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. You can use old space Mountain, new space Mountain. I don't care what it is. But you have to maintain the program, and you cannot go over budget. Okay. (laughs) Meeting over. Get out. Go get your team. Go figure this out. Just don't come back. Just get it done. Okay. And so we had a really experienced team work on it. So it was great. And it takes the it takes the discipline of all of these people to try and pull this together. And you pulled it off? Pulled it off. Came in at eighty nine point seven million dollars. Oh, Okay. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Came in. It came in and, and and there were things that I was unable to do. I, I couldn't get the whole star field on the inside, but I I prioritized everything that needed to be done that we could build while we were building it. In other words, if I needed to do projections on the inside, like a star field, I could add that later. Right. Or if but all the other things you had to have, you just had to have, right? And it was just really, really important.
0: And before I ask you about the name change how often, when you go, we'll add that later. Does it actually get added later?
1: Well, in this case, it did. It did get added later because. Oh, okay. Because um, you know when they when they went to uh, Mission Two, which was another revamp of the show for that that right. attraction, and then they went to um, the Star Wars kind of thing. hyperspace mountain. Hyperspace, thank you. Um, you know, they end up putting in their own show. But see, it's great because the, the facility is there. The ride is there. They don't have to do anything. They just come in with a different budget and they just focus on the show. So it's right. it's great, right? So we begin construction. We start construction and we move along for two or three years. <laughs> I'm just going to jump right to the forehead. So, so now Space Mountain is really coming together and you can see it being built. But at the same time, you know, it's coming out of the ground and we're building this thing at the same time in the news, especially in France, you're continually hearing these conversations about, you know, Disneyland Paris is in trouble and Disney may pull out. And so the administration over there, um, Philippe Bourguignon, who is president of Disneyland Paris, um, He was under the gun because, you know, he was French and, you know, are we making a mistake and all that. So getting close to the opening, one day he calls me and he says, look, I have 120 bankers coming in and they want to review the progress of the project, of of the park. uh, They're just reviewing everything. And I want you to stand up and talk to them about Space Mountain. Oh, wow. So, so I, you know, they they said, well, all these guys, all these people, financial people, they're all guys, most, most of them are men, some women, but all in business attire, and they all have briefcases on it. And so they set this presentation up at the New York Hotel Convention Center. And so they said, just get up, just get up and tell them what it's going to be. Just great. No problem. I'll be happy to tell them what it's going to be. And you could see the thing it was right out there. But. All the administration people were, if we we're Disneyland Paris, were terrified. They said, "You know what? We're going to get killed in this meeting because you know, if we tell them we're going broke and yet we're spending 90 million dollars on an attraction, they're going to wonder what the heck is going on here." Right. I said, "Okay, fine. Well, thank you for throwing me to the dogs, but that's okay. I'll, I'll thank I'll take it." So I get up and I and I and I do a whole presentation on the mountain. And at the end of the presentation, I said, were well, there any questions? And there was a, one guy raised his hand. And he goes, we think this is fantastic. So why are not you building? What, what else are you guys building? Why don't you build more? Why don't you build, start building better attractions? Oh, are wow. You, more attractions. And he said, they were open for it. And I said, "Wow, well, okay. And I looked at Philippe Borg, you know, and he was like, dodge that bullet. And I said, we have a special treat for you today. You know, all of you who are here, we're going to take you, and you're going to get the first ride from Spaceman. And it was a phenomenal experience. These guys all lined up, they ended up, all of them ended up like being like 12 year old kids. They would, we led them into the load unload area. These guys would get into the rocket. And when they got into the rocket, into the 24 passenger train, um, they would set the briefcases out on, um, you know, the, 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 um, the loading dock. Right. The loading dock, right? So the train will leave, and here's like 24 suitcase briefcases flanking, you know, both sides of the track. All right. And so these people came out, and they were, it was like amazing. I mean, there was never any problem with that. And, um, you know, between the promotions that the company did, I mean, Coca Cola did a major promotion. They made, they they, they produced like Coca Cola cans. They made a hundred million Coca Cola cans with a logo on it. And they did this TV special and then we did a big tv special uh on the opening in uh, in in 95 from Uh, and so those days, um, you know, I spent all my time, oh, back and forth. I was back and forth all the time. So from June of 1994 to June of 1995, when we opened, I, I could not stay there longer than six months where there was a serious uh, tax implication for the company. So in June of 94, from June of 94 to June of 95, I spent 178 nights at the Disneyland hotel. I was flying, I was flying back and forth every week you know, back and forth. I didn't even know what time zone I lived in. Um, uh, So, but, but it's really, it was really intense and it was really exciting. And the, the, the opening uh, the grand opening, it was amazing. See, the opening for the park in 1992, people didn't really understand what this Disney thing was all about. You know, it didn't matter who it was. It could have been cast members. It was the cast members or the guests. They were like, what is this Disney thing? Three years later, when we opened this up, everybody now, the French people, the cast members, they understood what the quality of what Disney was all about. And so everyone was so happy. They were so excited. It was kind of amazing, really amazing. And then the, and then it was a phenomenon. I mean, the attendance jumped by two and a half million Um They went from they started like 10 and a half and then it dropped down to like nine million. And then we jumped back up to 11, almost 12 million. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm sorry. It jumped up to 12 million um, on, you know, after Space Mountain opened. And if you want to know something really shocking, and I'll tell you it shocks me today. Space Mountain is the last 1995 was the last major attraction added to the Disneyland Paris project. Now, all the money that they do expansion now is for the studio tour. Um, right. But, um, but you know, the, you know the Marvel stuff and Pixar stuff and all that goes to the studio on that side. But in terms of the Castle Park itself, Space Mountain was the last of them. You know? So one, one last bit to answer your question, what you were asking before. So some of the administration people over there in France were really, really getting nervous about this is pre-opening Space Mountain. Ma- uh, Pre opening Discovery Mountain.
0: Right? Okay.
1: So, um, you know, Michael Eisen would show up, you know, they, they always, management always cycles through and goes to all the projects. So wh- I'm standing there and, and walking through with Michael and, and his team and all that. And then the French administration people are saying like, look, we, we're really nervous about this project. And he goes, why? What's the matter with it? He goes, well, you know, Space Mountain is a brand that's in the Disney parks and Discovery Mountain is not. We have to come up with a new branding. So on the spot, right instantly there, Michael goes, okay, we'll call it Space Mountain. Now you have no excuse why this doesn't save your park or why it doesn't, you, you, you want, it, you want it from Discovery Mountain, Space Mountain. Okay. It's not Space Mountain. That's the way it's going to be. All right. We had to change all the signage. We had to say the marquee and all that. And it's only because, and, and I understand probably where they're coming from, because these are not, you know, the creative ride guys. But it was like in one, in two seconds, it went from Discovery Mountain to Space Mountain, just like that. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's how it goes. You know, I mean, Michael's a branding kind of guy. <clears throat> <Yep. clears throat> he understood where they, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. He understood where they were coming from. Yeah, absolutely understood where they were coming from. Right. So he goes, he goes, okay, right, you got it. There you go. Now you have no reason why this thing doesn't just perform. And it did. And it did. It really, it really, it really saved me. it. It was, it was, it, it put new life into the park. It showed to the financial community that the park was viable. Um, it was vital. And you know, it's been, it's been growing ever since. So, um, you know, it was good. It was a, it was a really interesting, it was a really interesting experience to go through. Um, as I said, the TV special was an amazing phenomenon, and and the the, um, the the as I said before, as I was saying a little while ago, how much more um, awareness did the general public had of what the Disney um, experience was all about because they didn't understand what Disney parks. They, they all know amusement parks and all that, but there was huge interest in this. So I would do a lot of press meetings over there. I was I was like the guy. I mean, hardly anybody else was Imagineering, no one on the creative side. I was the last of the Moicans over there in terms of doing this project. So I would sit with the press and they all had this kind of curiosity about what is the Imagineering. And I remember meeting with a whole group of people and I did a press conference and they were talking about the thing that I started this conversation off with, which was, you know, Imagineering at that time probably had 2,000 people in it. And like I said it was comprised of about 150 Disciplines, you know, as I said, engineering, architects, model builders, writers, filmmakers, audio people, lighting people. I mean, it's whole whole gamut of people. And people were blown away. Like, I was. I mean, even I was critical. Like, why? Why? What did you expect? They go, well, we thought Walt Disney Imagineering was like five guys sitting around a coffee table, going, "Hey, you know, well, let's just do this." Like no 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 not at all. It's a very sophisticated, disciplined, major, talented organization that puts these parks together. I don't know if you've
0: heard the uh, the Jim Gaffigan stand up bit about Disney World. Um, he goes, he's like. It's like, "Oh, you know, we took my kids to Disney, and you know, these rides were built in like the 60s, man. They didn't know. Like, it was like, put somebody in a log and throw them over a waterfall." And you're <laughs> like, "Well, that might be how you imagine it happens, but, you know, there's more to it than we're going to put you in a bumper car and tell you a picture of Winnie the Pooh." You know, <laughs> like
1: <laughs> Well, in a way, people just don't know. And, and the extraordinary thing about this revelation and the fact that people didn't know was that the response from people that I got from young people, like saying, you know, I, I heard your speech and I really didn't realize that there was somebody could actually make a profession out of this. And for years, I have to say, I mean, a, a good example, I'll give you one example. I was down at, Epco, or excuse me, I was down at the IAPA convention, which is the convention for all the horizon shows down in, uh, right. in Orlando. Uh, it's held every November. And I was listening to a panel discussion. Marty Scalar and Bob Rogers were doing something. And so I was like waiting to talk to somebody. And this guy comes up to me and he says, are you Tim Delaney? And I went, yeah. And he says, he was like, you changed my life. And I said, why? He says, well, I didn't know what to do with my life. And I was like, I realized when I heard about what you had done and what Imagineering does, I decided to, you know, get into that world. And so he became a. An engineer on lighting he was like he was in some institute it was like focusing on lasers and all oh kinds wow of light technologies and he goes i had no idea what to do with my life before that but then after that it was like you showed me the way and now i do things for all kinds of people on the world and I, and I and i call that out as as one of the things that inspired me and i said well it's kind of funny because and then i tell him my story about walt disney and the man in space thing and you know you, everybody needs some level of Inspiration. Right. And it really is, um, you don't know where it is. I mean, it's not, it's, I mean, I don't take credit for it, but he happened, I happened to say something at the right time when he heard it. And he was a, you know, he was probably 13 years old. Right. And he, and he, you know, related this story. And I was like, great. You know, I think that's fantastic. I mean, and and he was thrilled what he was doing. He was like, I'm so excited doing what I'm doing. And and I've gotten I got so many letters from kids on these kinds of things. And I answered every one of them. And it was before, you know, basically the Internet and emails and all that. Right. But um, so it was good. I mean, it was good. It's there's there's many, many stories behind the stories. I mean, I. I could make this thing a 25 hour thing if you want to know everything that goes on. But there's a marketing thing and how people work together. It was really quite extraordinary, and uh, it and obviously is 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 it was it, it for me of all the um, of all my big mega projects. I would say, and I worked on a lot of things before it and I worked on a lot of things afterwards. But I would say there was something quite special probably the time in my life and all that for Disneyland Paris. Um, the park is beautiful. Um, we had a really, a great group working on it all the, from the technical side to the creative side to it. Everybody was really quite extraordinary. And the company, the Walt Disney company at that time with Frank Wells and Michael and Jeffrey, and the company was just booming. It was just growing right. crazy at that time. So that was, you know, they came in 84 and this was 92. So, right. you know, it was it was a it was a very very special kind of golden time for um, uh, the Walt Disney Company.
0: So you would go on to do Hong Kong Disneyland, um,
1: out the Pirates area,
0: right? Can you tell me a little bit about the Pirate area?
1: I, I did uh, no, I did Tomorrowland over in, in Tomorrowland. But
0: wasn't there a pirate concept at some point? Oh yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah. Well, I, after we had opened the park over there, um, you know they they needed to expand it. The park was. Uh, small. I mean, it was small. Um, right.
0: It's the smallest Disney park.
1: Yeah, Castle I,
0: Park, at least.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. I mean, the park, the park could have been a jewel. I just, uh, I think that there were some problems with the menu and the budget and right. And and so they've done great things by adding on to it, but um, and they're they're
0: doing the big expansion now with, um, is it Frozen is going to go in and the new castle and yeah. and they're getting it there, but at some point I heard something about a pirate haunted mansion.
1: Yeah, well, what happened is after we had opened and it, and um, we I don't know what the time period was, but because the pirate movies. You know, the Johnny Depp pirate movies were phenomenal success, and there was a huge area um, behind Adventureland, yeah, behind Adventureland, um, that we started developing ideas for a dedicated uh, pirate land, I mean a whole land. Right. I did a lot of work on that, a lot of work. And, and, you know, they, they were going to do, um, you know, that I, you know, I, I'm, I'm terrible at remembering the names of the movies, but the one that had the Chinese pirates in it. Yes. That, you know, we should just do the Chinese pirate thing. I mean, it was so rich. It was so good. Um, but then, you know, it's like, for me, I was really lucky. I didn't work on a lot of projects that were abandoned. I worked on a lot of projects that got built. And, uh, but for some reason, you know, you, you worked on a team and you, you know, they'd say, Hey, you know, get on these things. And, you know, that's how it gets done. You know, I, I, I was, like I said, I was very fortunate. I was busy all the time. I'm still busy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's funny
0: because they would go on to build a pirate land at Shanghai Disneyland, right? Just literally within the same country. Although not part of the special administrative region of Hong Kong, you would have a pirate land. So the idea lived on.
1: Well, it it also, it also has, you know, things, things change all the time. You know, um, you know, a lot of times people will say, Oh, you know, I saw that ride or that concept a long time ago, especially, um, in those days, ideas, there's no, ideas ideas come and go or they 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 come to the surface and then they have to just wait for their time right. whether it's the right time for marketing it could be the right it might need a a a time for technology there's you you never know you never know why things come and go i mean they never built that western land you know um they did, there's a lot of things that they haven't done, but a lot of times ideas uh, they might turn into something else or right. You know, and Disney you,
0: you, prides itself by saying, you know, an idea here never dies. We just put it on the shelf.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it's true. And it becomes something else or somebody takes one idea and expands it to something else. You know I mean, it, you, you never know. You never know where the ideas are coming from. But, I mean, today, obviously, everything has changed in a sense because everything in the Walt Disney Company, everything now is IP oriented, you know. Right. And I think it's a better – I mean, I mean, I think the parks – you know, like um, they have a richness to them all, all on their own. But I mean, everything now, I mean, I did Paradise Pier on it, Disney's California Adventure, and now it's Pixar Pier. And, um, you know, I mean, is it better? I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's it but it is branded and that's what they do. Right.
0: It's, and I, I think the elements of DCA that you did were the strongest elements of the first iteration of that part. Right. The entrance is innovative and it's cool. It literally, when you walk in at night and you stand right in the center, it looks like a postcard, just like it was supposed to.
1: Yeah. And I I, I took a lot of pride in the, you know, I thought it was kind of a real coup to put the Golden Gate Bridge in and have the monorail go through it. It was, it was a marriage of two California icons. Um, But, you know, I have to tell you, those were those were some tough times there, um, both of those projects, because we didn't have the funding to do them correctly.
0: Right. So I want to ask you about one more thing. You did some concept art for Alani, right?
1: Oh, yeah, I did all the original stuff. I started on that project.
0: So what was Alani going to be versus what it became?
1: I, I think it's pretty close to what it became. You know, I mean, I started uh, all the early renderings and all the layout. Well, well, let me be clear. Let me be clear. Um I was working on the team, but I was basically, uh I was doing the pool area out in the back, and right. I did I did all the first renderings of the lobby and all that. And then I moved on to something else. And, and matter of fact, when I started working on, it, I went and talked to Joe Rohde because Joe Joe grew up in Hawaii, and I said, Oh, really. Hey. You know, why don't you you know, why aren't you on this? You know, we should do something. And Joe, you know, Joe is really great at story and and in and art direction, all that stuff. Right. I, and then I got off of the I think I was going on to Shanghai Disneyland is what I was doing. And so then you did stuff for Shanghai. Yeah, original concepts, yeah. Oh, cool. Um well, I mean, I you know, nothing ever got anywhere. We we were exploring it, you know. Right. You know, I mean, I did the, I did a huge train station.
0: Yep. I uh, saw that in the concept art.
1: And I, and I also did, um, I also did a whole bunch of ideas uh, for the entrance to the park, which, which I think that they ended up using some of the stuff I used. But but I, by then I was, but then after that, I, that was the last thing I worked on before I left. So. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so Aulani is, you know, I mean, it's phenomenal. Well, I will tell you what happened is that after Hong Kong Disneyland, I was, um, I wanted to do something else. And so I started working on resorts and I was, and I still am really bullish on Disney resorts. Um, I think we should do them worldwide.
0: Oh, yeah, me too. I mean, I think that would add so much additional value to. The Disney Vacation Club, it would be awesome. I'm a you know big Disney fan, so if I could go to New York and stay in a Disney hotel, I would definitely stay in a Disney hotel over, you know, um a Marriott or even probably over some of your Waldorf Astoria, the Plaza Hotel, just because I like the the theming and you know, the level of service you get.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted um, much more of an experience thing. And, and if you think about this, I don't believe that Disney's going to build uh, another major theme park uh, in, let's say, Australia. And I'm not sure that they're going to build another major theme park in South America. All right. Maybe I'm wrong. I may be wrong. I don't know, but let's, let's just, let's just take one, for example. OK, if, if you built, let's just say Australia, for example, um, if you built like if you had, I don't know, 500 acres or 400 acres, which you can find in Australia. But you built like the Aulani and it's a resort. And Bob Iger said it the best when he talked about Aulani. He said, I want it to be a capital H Hawaii and a small D Disney, meaning you take the concepts of Disney storytelling and you tell the stories of Hawaii and that's basically what they did they talked right. about the history and all that but it gives it kind of a quality of what disney does bring to projects right so i think if you did something in australia or you know maybe you know i, I could think of other places i mean the one the one that i keep thinking about that I, that i thought it just sells itself and this is this goes back i'm i'm going back 10 12 15 years okay and, Why don't we have a Pirates of the Caribbean resort in the Caribbean? That's genius. It sells itself, right? It's just like, why not? You know, and you can have the cruise ship show up and all that stuff. But it it never got any traction. Never got any traction. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. I'm far. I'm I'm not even connected to Disney anymore. So, (laughs) yeah. I don't know what's going on. I've got my own business that I have to run. So, um, so that's what I do. But, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fans and a lot of people who, who, you know, uh, what I did is it, I was in charge of the creative, uh, side of doing uh, the first D23 for Parks and Resorts. Right. right? And Parks and Resorts, that first D23 was the one where we really introduced, uh, the Alwani Resort. And that was, there was a model there and all that. And, um, so, uh, I was, I designed the whole thing and we had a big team and we were showcasing things and everybody was all concerned about what to show and not to show. But I remember when Bob Iger came in with Dick Cook and the, the the whole model was surrounded by, you know, I was standing, I said, model. I was just telling people, they go, what is this? I go, well, this is a resort in Hawaii that Disney is thinking about building. And they were like, people were like, sign me up. I want to go there. I'm going to do that. Cause I love Disney. And it's like, yeah, great. So, I, you know, I took that time to talk to Bob about it, but I, I don't think Bob's a real estate guy. I mean, there are, I don't mean that. There's so many things in the world the company can do. I mean, obviously, right. the cruise ships, cruise ships are phenomenal and all that. But I, I just think that there are certain things, if you're not going to build a Disney park and you're not influencing it. In other words, you know, you wouldn't put it in China. You wouldn't put a resort, a standalone resort in China because they already have two parks there. You know, it's a would. Right. But where would you go that they wouldn't go that would be safe and, you know, people want to have that experience? And, um, and I think storytelling about certain regions is a, kind of an amazing thing, but right. know, they have too many other things to do, I, I'm guessing.
0: Tim, thank you so much for coming on and being so generous with your time. It's been a real pleasure to, to talk to someone who's done so much um, over their career with the company. Um, thank you.
1: Well, my pleasure. It's 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 as you can tell for me, it's it's easy to talk about because uh it, because it was uh, it was a great experience to do great things, work with fantastic people people on your team and all that. And so it's it's as I said, it's kind of easy. And I mean, to me, I don't even think about it. I just like kind of like yeah. That's I mean, there are times where I go through these things. I am like, oh yeah, that did happen, and I am telling. <laughs> this, it's amazing anyway yeah people are interested i mean it's it is a fascinating story because it's a story of all kinds of things of entertainment and personalities and you know and 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 getting things done i mean getting things done is a big deal today and uh and i do a lot of work on the outside not many people have the spirit and the money and the will to do what it takes disney to do and uh it was a it was i loved working there and it was great and i thank uh, you tim
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Monorail News Weekly, featuring Tim Delaney, the Imagineer behind Euro Disneyland's Discoveryland, Alani, Hong Kong Disneyland's Tomorrowland, and much, much more. If you like the show, it'd be great if you would give us a rating and a review in iTunes. It really helps the show to grow. It helps... People who would like the show, but don't know about the show, to find the show. As always, we wish you a great week, and we'll see you next Saturday.